Welcome to Rooster Radio, where we talk to interesting people doing amazing things. I'm Andrew Montesi with James Begley. We talk to Troy Wallet and Sebastian Rees, who are changing the way GPs do business through their company, GenWise. As doctors themselves, Troy and Sebastian built GenWise to solve their own problems around practice management in the aged care sector. Now the platform is being embraced by GPs and patients Australia-wide, GenWise was recently crowned Australian Business of the Year at the prestigious Telstra Business Awards. GenWise is a virtual practice with no bricks and mortar clinic, boosting efficiencies and lowering costs with its innovative practice in your pocket. Troy and Sebastian talk about the future of health and improving the disconnect between patients and the health system. We also had a fascinating and philosophical discussion about ageing and death and how our fear of talking about these issues is holding us back. There's this and so much more as Troy Wallet and Sebastian Rees share their stories and insights. Enjoy our chat. Sebastian and Troy, welcome to Rooster Radio. Great, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Monty, I'm a little bit threatened. <laughs> I'm very threatened. Two very good-looking guys, very well-dressed. I'm here with stubble, wearing a hoodie, looking terrible, to be honest. Um, but in all seriousness, how on earth did... Uh, does your business, GenWise, work? How did you guys get involved in this aged care stuff? Right, I'll answer that one. So, look, we're both GPs. Uh, we I actually met Troy for the first time at a Flight of the Concords concert. Very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sitting uh, behind him with my wife, Stephanie. He was, he was in front of us with his wife, Abby. And uh, I trained with her. Um, at the Women's and Children's here in Adelaide. And we, we um, got talking, realised we both work as GPs in aged care and uh, decided that given that shared interest, we should catch up and see if there was any way we could work together. So that was about five years ago. And at that time, the aged care space, general practice, awful. Just uh, the inefficiencies, uh, it would, aged care facilities, older people really struggling to get good GP care uh, and we really wanted to do this as a career uh, so we thought okay here's a great opportunity to one build something for ourselves but potentially build a business as well so GenWise was the solution to our own problems uh, to support a career but also you know a bit of an opportunity to create something long lasting. Can you maybe just tell <clears throat> us a bit more about the problem that you, you kind of touched on just then in terms of this what appears to be a disconnect between people and, and patients and the system. So, when I started working in in aged care, when I met Sebastian, it was you'd go into the aged care facility as a GP, and there's lots of really good GPs doing this, and we're doing it kind of the way that I'm about to say, where you'd go in and you would write paper notes, you'd hand that over to the nursing staff, you'd write slips of paper to take back to your practice, and then you'd spend ages doing the back office billings or retyping the notes, et cetera, et cetera. The, the whole system was pretty clunky. Um, and so when Seb and I started talking about it, I can remember the dingy coffee shop we were sitting in the back and just chatting through things and we could see the way that it was going to work and we could see how we could do it better. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah, just just kind of we started from there putting it together and, and solved a couple of issues that needed to, to work and made the systems a bit better. Was there a clear starting point? Because when I think about the health system, I've, I've worked with a few people 
in this health tech space as well. Like, you almost get overawed. Like, it is so big. It is so intimidating. It, it seems so broken in many ways. Like, it's almost like, geez, this is just too hard. Yeah, yeah. I think the – we had to simplify things. It was a huge problem. Uh, but because we were faced with it every day, we thought, well, what what are the uh, essentials of what we need to solve our own problem? Mm. The list wasn't that long. To solve it for everyone else, it was getting longer and longer and longer. But just for two people, we needed good software, we needed good data uh, storage, we needed support, we needed to be able to communicate. So we broke it down and just took off, bit off something that was manageable. And then over the five years, then looked at bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but in the beginning, we just bit off something that we could handle. Yeah. It, it's pretty, it was pretty easy in the beginning because we were our own customers. We built it for ourselves. I, I distinctly remember going, if this works for us, it only has to work for us and it'll work. Um, That's right. It, it wouldn't be a business then, but, we, but it only needed to work for us, which was an easy start. So then at a dinner party when someone says, well, what is GenWise? So we get it in terms of where it's come from. Um, who pays? Who uses it? How do they use it? What happens? So GenWise is a aged care specific mobile general practice. It's a general practice in your pocket. It's for all healthcare professionals. Uh, they can use it. So allied health, GP specialists. And it can be used at any time where a healthcare professional steps outside the brick-and-mortar GP clinic. So on the side of the street, if, if need be, um, in an aged care facility, in someone's home, on the sports field, pop-up clinic, homeless shelter clinic, women's shelter clinic, you name it. Uh, so we go to the patient rather than them often uh, the type of population who have uh, difficult access to GP clinics. Do you, do you want a consult? Because <laughs> we could do it right now. Tell right. me what your yeah. problem is. Right. <laughs> so the, the GP pays? Yes. Yeah. So, so our business model is based on a fee to the GP, um, and it's a percentage of their, their billing. So a commission-based. Yeah. It's pretty standard. That's how general practice works. Bex really could do with a, a consult. He's been that crook the last few weeks, what you've had. <laughs> A couple of bats of gastro. Uh, actually, so, there's, some, there's, some, there's some unnamed diseases that have been floating through this office. We don't got to go there. No. But if you give me your Medicare card, I'll haul up my computer. I would, but I, lost, I would, but I lost my wallet on last Thursday. And I actually don't have a Medicare card at the moment. He's in. That's true. Yeah, uh, well, that's um, that's dementia. I can diagnose that for you as well. But I guess is this the future of medical care? So the you guys, GPs, going to people, people getting support as they need it instead of, I guess, the other way around? I'd love to see that happen. I don't think it's the complete... I don't. It's not going to be the only model. I think that the model at the moment of having general practice buildings that you go to I think works really well most of the time. But I would think that it, there is a... I guess you can say gap in the market or a need or there is value coming to people. So I would love to see, it's, it's awesome, technology is getting us back to the old days where the GP can come to your house, the GP can come to wherever they need to be. So um, I really love that idea, and I think that using this, the GenWise model, um, 
can allow that. So it's not a it's not going to take over completely, but it hopefully it just adds on and meets a need and a value. So in the journey of <coughs> Genwise, um, the first big roadblock or stumbling point, if you've had one, what mm. was it? And then the follow-up part to that would be at what point was the business catalyzed kind of to the next levels? I the onboarding the second or third GP was really difficult, really difficult. Our first GP, obviously, was ourselves, so we're covering our costs, uh, but we couldn't really call it a business yet. First GP was a colleague of Troy's, uh, and that was wonderful to test it with, you know, first customer. It means a lot. But, you know, it took us a long time, six, mm. nine months to really get going from there. And that was a real crisis of purpose. Uh, is this a real thing? Has, you know, is this worth anything to anyone? So that was huge. Perhaps, uh, and this, you know, this is kind of funny, we placed the classified ad about a year later for a GP uh, and my my thinking at the time was it was going to be an, a South Australian based ad and then we had inquiries I was handling the inquiries are coming from New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria and I thought, this is a bit strange and I don't know if Troy intended at the time but it actually placed a national ad <laughs> to join Genwise was it deliberate? I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> it's the wonderful thing about Genwise I'll let you finish on yeah and so we thought actually you know what we we, there's no geographical boundaries to what we're doing. This could be used interstate. And we, we worked out that actually a national community was going to work. And that was probably a, you know, a huge catalyst. We had an, a news article, an interview that Troy was in following that a few months later, really took off from there. It's been a fun journey. And I think we trained as, as doctors and doctors don't have business training. And when we started GenWise, there was lots of Fear. There was lots of, oh, we don't really know what to do. And it took us eight months to figure out, to put an ad in. I mean, we don't do marketing. We're not marketing people. So the learning and the journey of GenWise has just been invaluable to us, I think. And we've had so much fun with it and kind of experimented and played with it. It's been yeah, good. That's right. I think it probably sounds absurd to say it took us eight months to place an ad to recruit a doctor. We were terrified. We were really afraid to put ourselves out there. Uh, you know, to be criticised, it might not work, we might let people down. And so I think the fear was really holding us mm. back for a long time. Then when we did it, we're still terrified, but at least... <laughs> You're terrified. <laughs> <laughs> You're terrified about everything. It's true, that's it's true. It's the balance of well, what we do. That, funnily enough, that was my next <clears throat> question about, uh, we have a lot of people listening who have either started something or co-founded something. What, and Monty and I have talked about it from our own point of view, but what's the dynamic between you two, like strengths or weaknesses and how you push each other's buttons or don't? Like, how do you summarise that stuff? Uh, uh, my favourite analogy for this is we like a, sail, a sailing ship and it flips and flops occasionally, but I'm the sails, so we, I come up with all the crazy ideas and, and Seb's the ballast. He sort of keeps us centered and grounded. Although recently it's kind of flipped a little bit. We do, I'm the ballast sometimes, we've learned. But, um, and, but a sailing ship without sails goes nowhere and a sailing ship without ballast capsizes and, and flounders. So it's, it's been pretty lucky. Our, our strengths and weaknesses correspond or overlap or, or work together really, really well, which means we fight 
all the time. Can't um, imagine it because we, well, we we do we do. It's, it's always like it's good, solid, like arguing. It's it's like I'm blue team, you're red team, and let's figure it out. And when we come to it at the end, I think it's a, a strength of what happens is we come out the end of it, and it's like okay, now let's do it. Um, or sometimes we don't, and we work it out. So the balance is is really really good. And I think it's probably one of the things that's worked very well with Gen Ys is that um, idea of sale versus ballast. People tend to get very protective of their existing systems and structures. Have you had any pushback from the industry with what you guys are doing? I think we haven't had pushback per se. I think that naturally, if you look at our business and then you look at the brick-and-mortar business, anyone from the outside could say, hey, uh, are you potentially disrupting something here? Is this a business threat? Uh, but we've really, really worked hard and we feel that we've succeeded to show conventional models of general practice that this is a supplementary service, that this is supporting uh, and and GP practices have been, you know, overall really positive and, and warm to, to what we're doing to the extent that now that a lot of them are asking for us to collaborate with them, which is just, we're, so, we're actually relieved, you know, to say, hey, can you help us with our aged care work, which is a huge thumbs up. Yeah, medicine's not something you should disrupt. Well, you should be very <laughs> cautious with disrupting health because it's an, it's an important thing. And we've never really, I think some people consider us a bit disruptive, but we're not, we've never sort of wanted to be that. It's a catchphrase that VCs look for, and, but it's not really the idea. We meet a need. We saw, we saw a need and we've met that need. We're not going in there to um, sort of move into somebody else's space. What we want to do is go, do you need a doctor? Yes. Okay, let's try and find a doctor. That's, that's what we're trying to do. And I think in the beginning, I mean, trust and legitimacy in the medical world as well as GPs is, is very valuable and hard to come by. Um, and we work quite hard in building up that legitimacy and that trust. And, and it, take, it has taken some time, but as I said, we're saying in a lot of the nursing homes and the facilities that we work at now, um, the practices in the area go, oh, I can't get in to see them today. Seb's going there after hours. Can I? Can you, Seb, see them and, and help with my patients? So it's forming that collaboration. That's what we love is that, is that collaboration and that, that growth. Companies... <clears throat> come at a time when it seems that kind of the role of the GP seems to have changed a heck of a lot. I mean, everyone self-diagnoses on Google now and, and whatever else. How have you guys seen that in your profession and with this company, the role of the, the GP? Um, I think the role of the GP has never really changed. It's just, it's just people have, as you say, they're Googling that kind of thing. I love it when my patients Google stuff and come to me and say, I think I've got cancer. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, let's talk through it. Because that's always what happens, isn't it? Google tells you it's, you've got cancer or some dread disease. The idea is that um, I'm not threatened by an intelligent, smart person. I, I'm, I can't talk for other GPs. I can only talk about the way I'm sort of starting to think about my role as a, as a GP. And I'm trying to redefine myself into a health coach rather than as a GP. Um, people are smart. They know their health really, really well. 
they have Googled their symptoms, and most of the time they can come up with stuff. Sometimes they've Googled their medication, they come up with a list of side effects, and my role is to discuss that with you and tell you, and then come up with a plan together. I don't get irritated with my patients if they don't take my medication. I don't get annoyed if they don't exercise and eat well, because who am I to tell them what to do? Um, and I'll help them work out how they can do that a bit more. And the nice thing is, instead of just being a coach with no training, I can give you tablets if you need them, or I can send you somewhere if you need them. I've got more resources at hand. But I think that idea of health coach um, is interesting, I guess, to explore. And one needs to be a bit cautious when you sort of start thinking outside like that. But I, um, it's, I enjoy the, the concept. Do you practice anymore? Or are you full-time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no I've seen, yeah. I saw patients this morning before I came here. So did Seb. Yeah. I think that's been <clears throat> part of our secret sauce, if you like, that we are both using GenWise and working as GPs uh, every day. And so it allows us to use our product. So for people starting businesses, to be a user of your own product is a huge advantage. Mm. Going up a layer, I guess, from just your business, but aged care in general, um, it doesn't seem to have a great uh, you know, perception within the wider community. You see lots of documentaries, Four Corners, and they expose you know, aged people being treated really poorly. How do you see the lie of the land um, in this very, you know, in this fast growing part of our lives? Yeah, look, it, it is. You're right. It's really sad. A lot of the news coverage around aged care is negative. It's about neglect or abuse. Uh, and I can only imagine how that makes families feel when they have their, their family in aged care. Uh, I guess it's been wonderful for us to be in the spotlight at the moment to put aged care in the spotlight in a positive way uh, and certainly the aged care organisations and GPs and, and so forth that we're working with have had this chance to celebrate look the reason behind it I think personally that the models of care are so under resourced and under prepared for an ageing population the funding models uh, cannot supply the nursing care the facilities needed. Uh, in my opinion, aged care five, ten years ago used to be um, a place where older people would go when they needed a bit more help. Uh, it, they would perhaps see their GP from time to time, every few months, uh, and when they became unwell, they'd go into hospital. Now, aged care, residential aged care, or nursing homes, they're more of a end-of-life or palliative care hospital. They need 24-hour nursing. They need GPs working as a collaborative team. Simply not happening yet. And I think that people are under-skilled, under-resourced and finding themselves out of their depth and, and things are going terribly wrong. I think it's really quite hard. But my experience of working in the aged care sector, taking all that into account, is that there are a lot of people that care deeply about the residents and this goes from the carer on the ground who is in fact it was really cool at, at one of our wards the security guard came up and said hey how are you doing uh, I, I used to work as a carer I used to clean up after the old people and he was telling us stories about how 
the, um, the people, the older people would come in and obviously that have be incontinence and he would be like, what are you doing on there? But it would be part of the whole joke. Um, so from, so from the carers all the way to the, to the managers of the facilities cared deeply about their residents. Um, and I think it's, they work, the job is quite challenging and the, as all those other things Seb was talking about, make it challenging. But the people on the ground, it, well, it's great because systems can change, the people care, which is cool. Yeah, so, I agree. <clears throat> so where's the disconnect? So it's, he's saying it's the system that hasn't evolved or um, is it the strain that's being put on the system because of the ageing population? Yeah, I think it's it's the latter. I think that... Uh, I think, as Troy, to Troy's point, people really do care. They're doing what they can, from the carers all the way through to management. But I think that uh, there's huge strain, and so you know, the, there's there's residents that aren't getting the care that they need because there's simply not people on the on the ground available. And the, and the residents are getting sicker as well. Mm-hmm. So most, as they were saying, in the olden days, they used to come in because they needed a bit more care. Whereas now, in general, the the people there are older and frailer and need more. Um, so. I heard a really interesting podcast with Richard Feidler and, and it was on uh, um, a professional who, a uh, medical professional who had strong opinions about the, the amount of old people going to ICU um, and the cost and why they go into ICU. Can you explain, I guess, your own opinions on on that and, and your own thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think I've listened to that. I think it's a wonderful podcast. Look, I guess that the, the point behind that is what are we trying to achieve in all our lives, you know, from birth through to death? What is life all about? And we all want as long a life as possible, but are there some conditions on that? Do we want quality of life and to to what what extent do we balance them against each other and so when you get to 80s 90s and you're frail um, living your life is worn you know your body parts down your heart your lungs your joints etc and you get an illness pneumonia or an infection etc how much is that illness going to set you back what's your ability to recover to a place where you have good quality of life uh, and and what's the process of getting you there? How many tubes, how many medications, how many scans? Uh, and I think it's a blessing and a curse. We live as long as we've ever lived. Uh, we can do extraordinary medical procedures to restore life and to, to prolong life. Uh, however, the question is to... To what extent are we doing people a favour by keeping them alive? Is it just because we can? Um, so I think that whole thing around ICU is, yes, we could potentially extend the life of this person. What is their life, their quality of life, going to look like afterwards? Are they going to suffer? To me, it comes down to best care. Like, what is the best care for you at your time of life so even for me, if I was in, if if I was going to be in ICU and my and at the end of it I was going to come out and I wouldn't be able to communicate or be anything. What's my best care? What is the, what are you trying to achieve? And as people get older, the the goals that or what they think is best care changes. And I, 
For us, it's quite simple because we have that conversation with all of our patients, all of our people, and we ask them what's best care for you, what are your goals, what are you trying to do, where, where are you trying to go? And most of my patients wouldn't end up in ICU just because they don't want to be there. It's not for me to say, it's for us to discuss and figure mm. it out. So, I mean, I'll be strong on it. I don't think, I think that ICU for older people is probably not the best care for them at all because when they come out, as Seb was saying, if they come out, um, they will be far worse off than when they did. And the chances of them coming out of ICU are probably quite low. And then they spend their last two weeks or three weeks of their life in ICU, and that's not the place for them. That's not the place for anybody to spend the last two weeks of your life. You want your family around you. You want to be cared for and do all of those things. So that's my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <coughs> so interesting. I think part of the podcast also talked about, well, in this day and age where there's specialisation in healthcare, you know, um, we can fix pneumonia, we can fix this, we can fix uh, a problem over here. But the perception was, that, well, hang on, what is dying? Like maybe getting pneumonia at a very old age is the beginning of you dying. And, and the system now, though, doesn't really have a person whose job it is to say, right, I think this is the line. Well, well they do now. The GP do. does. So it's the GP's responsibility. Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do. That's what all of her. I mean, it's not only myself. We t- I talk, we've got a group of 40 doctors and we communicate all the time about this stuff. I think it's definitely my job. Because the other part of that too is they said in the old days, you know, on the death certificate, it'd just be like died of old age. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now you don't. You die of organ failure, you die of pneumonia, you die of infection. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To Troy's point, I think that the GP is a is emerging as an advocate for this. It's it is something that's increasingly an issue um, as there is more older people in the world. Simply, that's the case. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a really, really interesting time over the next five, ten, fifteen years. How we uh, is there going to be a cultural shift to? old age to death in old age because you know the 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 idea of getting pneumonia or getting a, uh, having a fall or something uh, at in your 90s when you have dementia and you're bed bound is we need to cure that is that going to change over the next 10 15 years i think it perhaps needs to how do you guys take on these conversations in a society that doesn't tend to want to talk about ageing and death. And I guess the second part of the question is, how much of an impact does not having these conversations actually have on what you guys are doing? For me, my style is when I meet a family and a patient for the first time, I bring it up pretty early. Uh, I find out what's important to them. Uh, It might be that they keep watching sports. It might be that they get to have their meals with the other people in the, in the um, care home. It might be that they uh, you know, maintain their ability to, to, to communicate. I've got to understand that person's idea of quality of life uh, and then we can go into, okay, how are we going to maintain that and, and, and keep that as top of our list, our priority? We talk around advanced care planning. So basically I'll say we are all at some stage going to die. That is a fact. And usually I get you know, a little bit of a gasp and eyes wide open. 
But I bring it up and name it because it's going to happen. And then I, you know, kind of talk to people around how does that look for you? What's the best case scenario? How do you want to to see that play out? And, uh, we, you know, that, the process of that is then documentation with their family around how they, you know, their, their idea around end-of-life care, where they want that to happen at an aged care home, in the home, in the hospital. You know, it's entirely up to them. The question here isn't about asking old people what they want around when they die. It's about asking you now. I mean, what, what have you thought about us? And and because I mean, that's the that's the idea is. I mean, it's a bit more obvious in old people. If you're 92, you've got eight years left. I joke with that with my patients all the time, and I'll say, "You've got eight years. You better make the best of it." But we could walk out right now, get smashed up by a car outside and we're sitting in ICU and do you, the people that are going to be answering your questions know what, what you want? I've had the conversation with my wife. What is it? I said if I can be of use to my kids, if the idea, when I, if I get into a situation where I can't talk, if the prognosis, if, what, if the out, expected outcome is that I'm going to have some use for my kids, I've got three little kids, um, then do everything you can. But if I'm not going to be useful to my kids, if I'm going to be unable to communicate and in a bed and needing all this stuff, just let me go. Um, and that hopefully will try keep me going throughout the whole of my life because it, it obviously that becomes a little bit different when I'm older and I've got dementia. Then I, at the, by default, I'm not going to be any use to my kids and family. So it's important for everybody to have that conversation with the person that's going to be making their decisions. And you can go online and do your own advanced care directives and stuff. It's not only old people that should be thinking about this. In terms of, <clears throat> I guess, um, your observations of older people that thrive or fade, what are kind of some of the key factors that tend to see people go either way? I wish I could tell. <laughs> That's a million-dollar question. There are certainly patterns, but uh, every day I'm amazed at, you know, you meet a 90-year-old and you just think you're still driving, still playing bridge at the local club, still winning, uh, and, you know, they've smoked cigarettes all their life when they've done all these things that they probably shouldn't have done. Uh, but, okay, patterns that I see... Uh, Remaining involved in the community. Community is huge. Family is huge. And I don't mean kind of helping out, you know, um, at, at RSLs and things like that. I mean actually having a sense of community. Their, their children are involved in their lives. They care for grandchildren. Uh, people care for them. They feel as though they have a value in a community. And I think that those people... Uh, just seem to 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 stay more engaged and and thrive into an old life rather than shade. I like that. It's, nice. it's it's luck and purpose. I think luck and purpose. So so uh, it, your health, whether you have a heart attack or a stroke, often that's got to do with luck. <clears throat> There's obviously some things you can do to, to sort of sort that out and decrease your risk. But and then sense of purpose, as Seb was saying, um, and that can come from anywhere. Uh, my my assertion is that purpose is something internal rather than something external um, so you can find your purpose or get given your purpose in many different ways but I th think people with purpose last longer. Jumping back now to I guess the beginning of Gen Wise um, we do have a lot of listeners 
who want to start their own thing or are in the process of starting their own thing. And I love your story because you said right from the outset that you were ambitious about this potentially being something. People love to talk about the romance of, oh, the business just grew on me and next thing I know I, I just woke up one day and was doing 100,000 revenue a week and I just thought, well, I have to do this. It sounds like you, del- you, you set about saying, let's have a go at this um, and hopefully it can become something bigger than just us. Can you explain your, I guess, learnings, your methodologies uh, that were strong in this period? I think there's... We started off with a problem to solve and we solved the problem. And I think that's often um, a good way to go. Derek Sivers is one of my heroes, mentors, people that I listen to a lot. And he talks about that he didn't want to run a business. He solved his own problem and it kind of just grew organically from there. Um, I don't think ours grew that organically, but um, it was a problem that we solved in the beginning. So I think that's the... That's the first thing when I give did you advice. Invest much of your own? Did you have to invest not, a lot of capital of your own in the beginning? Not a lot. I think that, that it was uh, pretty low investment mm. uh, early on, just given our model. I think, look, I, I believe in the concept of sell, then build, mm. right? And so that was easy for us. We sold it to ourselves and then we thought, okay, let's build it. And I think that everything that we embark on, when new project, new business, we sell to the customer first. We sell to a GP, we sell to an organization, get their interest, get that customer lined up because that's a huge thing. You see so many businesses and I've been involved in businesses where you go to a dark corner, to a basement somewhere, you think I've got an amazing idea, I'm not going to tell anyone, I'm going to build it, I'm going to release it, the whole world is going to then go, wow, and I'm going to just be the next tech whiz. <laughs> and then there's crickets. It works for some. <laughs> it works for some uh, but it, the millions others, I don't think it does. I think you really, really have to make sure of that why. The why yeah. is the most important thing. I think it's also systems thinking. I, I think about this a lot these days. If, if, if you want to be an artist, um, only a few artists really make it. So you can sit there and think, oh, yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to not be an artist because no, not very many artists make it. But if you want to be an artist, you have to paint and you have to exhibit and you have to do things that an artist is going to do. And in the end, you may or may, a bit of luck and all those kind of things, you may end up being the next Picasso. But you're never going to get there if you don't do it. It starts off with the actions and the system's thinking. And if you can... The, the analogy falls to pieces now, but if you can set up something that you are learning, your system, you're learning your systems anyway, and you come out, your business might not be awesome, or you might not be the artist, or you might not work, but you've gained a whole lot of personal growth in the process, then you win. That systems thinking, I think, is a is an awesome sort of idea. Can you just elaborate on that on the, that sort of system thinking concept and and how it plays out, how it played out in practice for you? Um. I guess one of the things we're doing right now, um, having sort of post sort of winning the Telstra Business Award, is exactly that: is systems thinking. We are we Seb, Seb's got a few things he wants to work on. I want to work on a couple of things, and so we'll use this platform to um, do public speaking. I'd like to do a bit more public speaking and get out there. So I need to learn how to do that and and 
develop a few skills along the way. And if the, in the end, if it doesn't work out, I get public speaking skills. And it doesn't even matter if I'm the next sort of keynote speaker at the world stage. Like that, that would be awesome, but that's not the, not the idea. And if you think systems, then there's no sense of failure. If you, because you, you win no matter what the outcome is. How did doing <clears throat> the alt MBA, um, Seth Godin's alt MBA, how did that impact your thinking around all of this stuff yeah. and how you've approached your business? I love the alt MBA and I love Seth Godin. I'm not, so the, the, the interesting thing is, thank you for bringing this up. It's a great thing. I can talk about this forever. So, um, <laughs> um, so there's, couple of people that go into the alt mba there's the guys that really just love seth godin and consume everything that he does and and you're the, and you're the disciples yeah and you can see you can see those people and they and they're wonderful i am not really one of those i've read two one or two of his books in fact purple cow we've found gen wise was one of the first things we started thinking about was the purple cow fantastic book um and um, and then the other people that get into sort of the Seth Godin alt MBA are kind of people that fall into it and just speaks to the process. So, so for those that don't know, just basically it's a month sprint where you get projects given to you every three days. And so there's 12 or 13 projects and there's themes and ideas around those projects. And basically, it's given to you. I, I thought you needed to come in with an idea of, I'm going to build this, and you build it by the end of it. It's, it's not. You can come in with nothing. Um, the knowledge that you gain in the Alt-MBA, you can gain anywhere, but the process was unbelievable. Um, it has changed my the way that I think in a huge way. And it, I, I, think what, I think GenWise is a Seth Godin business. Um, we... Um, our KPIs are ethics-based. We want to we want to delight our customers. Um, we are a purpose-driven company. We um, and it, so, yeah, it's all of those sort of things come come through. And it, it kind of it's all those sort of wishy-washy kind of ideas that you go, well, does this work? And, and I'm pretty happy that it does. So I can remember it was Project Nine on the Alt MBA. Um, and the theme was about constraint. And I was halfway through and I was in my kitchen just thinking about it, really involved in this whole thing. And I turned to my wife and I'm like, it's done. Like, I've got my value. It, it's, and, and I phoned Seb and I just wrote a whole lot of stuff down and I was like, this is what we're going to do with GenWise and this is how it's going to affect GenWise and this is what we're gonna, where we're going to go. And... From a brain-changing neurological point of view, <clears throat> post-Alt-MBA, I feel like I can do anything. Uh, I've just got the sense that I don't need... The, I, I, I've got the process that I could run anything, do anything. I might not have the skills, but those are easy. Skills and stuff are not, are not hard. So anyway, um, Alt-MBA was a life-changing experience. And now, to finish it all off, I'm in the alumni group, and Alt-MBA starts at the end. So now I'm in the alumni group. We have Zoom catch-up meetings on, on video with guys all over the world once a month. I fly to Melbourne sometimes to, once every quarter to go meet up with the other guys that have done it. And we just talk about stuff and sort of have this concept of generously feeding back and, and sceptic. So. It's a completely different way of approaching it, isn't it, from mm. your typical 
MBA or, or business course or even being a doctor, That's like right. textbook driven, memory, do yeah. assignments and then get your little piece of paper at the end. Totally. I mean, the interesting thing is prior to that, I was listening to the podcast of the of an MBA, it was an MBA book of basically like listen to the book and get your MBA. So I think the knowledge is, I mean, the knowledge is easy to come by in this day and age. Listen to an audio book, look it up online, but it's the processes and it's the thinking that's the most important. I agree that. I agree with that. And I think watching and hearing from Troy as he was going through the old MBA, I think the the shift from classic MBA, Harvard MBA, where I've you know worked alongside those types of business people to what Troy went through. One is creating business and creating money. The other one is creating value and social impact. And, you know, I, I think that was, it was marvellous. The head, head space was completely different. Mm. The most exhilarating moment so far in your Gen Y's journey, and it has to be a moment, so it can't just be like a thing that happened. It's like when you had the Jerry Maguire moment, You've just signed Kush Lash. You're driving home in the car and you put on, was it Free Falling, whatever that song is? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, was, it was actually winning South Australia Telstra Business of the Year. That's right. Yeah. It was incredible. Why? Because I didn't see it coming. Really didn't see it coming. I think that we are the biggest critics of our own business. It is it's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be efficient enough. It's never going to delight our GPs enough, have as big an impact as we like. And we're really tough on it. So to be there, to be assessed is quite a judging process to then meet the other businesses and think, okay, <laughs> it was nice to be here. <laughs> to then uh, to be validated and come out as as you know, one of the best with that recognition was just, I think there's a photo of Troy and I, uh, and Troy stood up, he's on his way to the stage, and I'm sitting in the chair with my mouth open, just, wa- <laughs> just watching him. It's like, good luck to you. I, I Honestly, it took me three or four seconds to just let the words sink in. Incredible. Yeah, I, I agree. That was, I mean, that's probably the most high emotionally one. I'm going to bring... The second one that came to mind when you asked that question was when one of our doctors posted on Facebook singing our praises, um, and it was in reply to another doctor's question, and he said, I'm involved, and I'm part of this group, and he just basically nailed it in a short paragraph, and I was like, no, we're there. Like, this is, when our doctors are starting to talk about us like this, Mm -hmm. it's one of those moments where I was just going like, yeah, success. It's gone beyond just you now. What have been some key triggers for growth? I just I find it remarkable because it seems such a complex space, winning mm. over doctors and patients and the systems. What what have been the drivers that have helped the business grow in the short journey so far? I think and, and that idea of winning over doctors has been a really, really interesting idea that we grapple with daily. And that has been the approach by corporate clinics, uh, recruiters in the healthcare space to win over, to potentially entice. Uh, And we've taken a very different approach. Our approach to growth has been to create 
a really strong narrative around who we are, what the problem is, so why we exist and how we, how we do it. And that takes time. So there hasn't actually been a tipping point where we, you know, suddenly we're an overnight sensation. That would be lovely. But it's been more of a build the narrative uh, so that GPs and healthcare professionals are drawn to us through word of mouth rather than won over. Um, and I'm picking on that a little bit because that's actually, I think, a, a really big differentiator for us is we are by GPs for GPs. We are GPs ourselves. This is a community, a network of healthcare professionals, not a business where we're at the top and you work for us. I'm interested in, I guess, where you look to now, having won 2,599 awards in the last <laughs> month. Um, you know, it's all looking pretty good. But I'd imagine, I mean, you guys are very ambitious. What are you looking to next? What's the next step? What are the goals mm. and how are you going to get there? Well, this is an intriguing question because we ask ourselves this all the time. I, I, I call this our singularity. So nothing's predictable from now onwards. Things are just going to happen. And there's two ways to do this. The one is we can sit back and get pulled and drafted and opportunities can come our way and we can go, yeah, let's do that and do that. And, do that. Um, and the other is to sort of continue walking our path. I think, and that's what we're going to do. We've, we've never been into the other, the idea of other people choosing us or telling us what to do. And um, I was talking to Seb about this a little while ago. When I ran my first marathon, it was ages ago, um, I ran it with a real experienced person. And, and I said, I want to do four hours. He said, oh, I want to do four hours as well. And we ran together. And that was before GPS watches and all that kind of nonsense. And every time somebody passed us, He'd say, oh, slow down, slow down. We're being drafted. We're being drafted. We're being pulled along. And so we got to 8Ks out. So I knew how to run 8Ks. And I was like, okay. And I took off and I ran a three-hour 47, which is still my best, my first, my best marathon. And I told Seb the story and we've been after the South Australian Awards. And we are resisting to being drafted. There's lots of things that come our way and pulling our attention backwards and forwards and we really need to just focus on what we do because what we do is good. Um, and it's intriguing because all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, yeah, we could do this, we could do that, and we could do the next thing. But really, um, I want to be able to go home at 1 o'clock to look after my kids in the afternoon, which is what I have to do. Um, I, and I want to be able to sort of give my GPs the lifestyle that they, that they want and live the lifestyle that I, that I want, but then yet not take, sort of use the opportunities to, the, to their fullest extent. So I guess the, the idea is um, business as usual. And hopefully, and the, the concept here is that hopefully this will take, to, to take the running analogy, hopefully this will take us from a slow jog into a fast jog or a sprint, give us the fitness and the energy to go faster, <clears throat> along the same road, but we need to resist being pulled off the road, I think. And what I'm hearing is that that's an active process which requires some energy to keep doing what you're focusing on. And like it's probably almost easier to get swept away and over here. Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, on Saturday, we spent a good six to eight hours not being drafted. Right? But we had a face-to-face catch-up and then we spent most of the after- afternoon then talking, talking through this. It's, it's, that is one of the hardest things, is to say no to, 
yeah. opportunities and to not be tempted in by maybe someone else's interest or someone else's agenda to stay clear on what you want to do. And so we were working through these things all of Saturday. Yeah. So yeah. It was fun. In the beginning, we were like, we want 150,000 doctors. <laughs> we want to be worldwide. We want to be the coolest people ever. And then by the end of it, we were like, no, we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an important process. <clears throat> totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. But have you, I mean, have you set practical goals like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So, so in, you know, at granular level, what we do want to do in our mission from the start is to ensure that older people in Australia have better access and choice of GP. And that remains true. We now have uh, a lot more help to, do, to achieve that. But there's so many parts of Australia that don't have good GP coverage. So that's certainly a very clear goal, whether that requires building our team from 40 to 400 GPs. The number for us isn't as important as ensuring that when families or aged care organisations reach out, there is a GP available. So that's the first thing. Second thing is education. Education of emerging and, and training healthcare professionals in this space. This is something that... Troy and I have been working in, and it's been a fairly niche space of general practice, but there are a lot of GPs that are new to this, and there's also new generations of GPs that are coming out that need to uh, perhaps prepare for this older population. So education is huge for us. Um, anything else? Yeah, I think it's just it's leverage, isn't it? It's that whole idea of what domino can you knock over to get the other to get the other things going so um i think that's i think you spot on there it's it's that's what and that's what we've done in the beginning since the beginning is um upskill we we focus on autonomy mastery and purpose with our doctors so we like to we give our doctors as much autonomy as they would like um the mastery point at part we think about all the time how can we without being dictative in, help our doctors master their profession and purpose is fairly easy i mean a doctor and working in aged care your purpose is fairly simple so we don't really think about that because it's a given are you still <coughs> bootstrapped to this point yeah yeah what? yeah we haven't received any external funding and it's just tried yeah what's your what's your thinking around that because i'd imagine that could be pretty tempting yeah, look, okay, so our, our position um, that we make pretty well known is that to achieve what we want to achieve, we uh, don't need external funding to do that. However, it would be foolish to say no, off the cuff. So we are happy to meet with uh, potential funders, potential VCs, private equity, etc., and we do, to just see what other ideas or synergies are out there because I think one of the dangerous things is to not know what you don't know. Mm. And someone may come along and say, you know what, we could have a greater impact if we work together, uh, in which case would be foolish. So we're always looking, and that's a large part of what I do, is to, to, to meet with people and find out what their interests are in the, in the marketplace but at this stage, it's just been Troy and myself and, you know, being cash flow positive business, it's very sustainable. Um, we've got then, you know, good capital for growth. Mm. Makes you guys so lucrative, I reckon, to, a, to VCs. You're in this health space, mm, which growing. is just growing. It's hot. Mm. Cash flow positive, like, 
it's, I don't know, it's just such an interesting position to be in. It is. And, and I've been in the position of working in a startup where we had received angel funding, uh, we had a very high burn rate, and we were running out of cash quick. We were a long way off from uh, developing any revenue. And to think I spent a good six, nine months pitching to VCs on the best case scenario, on how we were going to get there because we needed that, that financing so badly. And to be in GenWise where we have the freedom to be able to keep innovating based on the cash flow that we have, it benefits our doctors and, and so forth. But, but was it, that deliberate? So the, the GenWise model correct, kind yeah. of in reaction to from not, the, want, not wanting to... From the very beginning, we decided that if we both worked in GenWise, if we invested well and built a, uh, a lean model that we could stay dynamic, stay independent, and it would give us the freedom to do all sorts of different things in the future. Because obviously, you know, when there's two of you, you have each other to, to, to compromise with, as you've learned. Uh, you know, that's sometimes a bit of a challenge. You bring in other parties and that freedom, that autonomy in a business reduces. I like too how you send the ballast out to talk to the potential uh, suitors. <laughs> so if it gets through the ballast, then it must be half okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I haven't commented on that uh, metaphor earlier. I, I've, been, uh, I've been the ballast, to be honest. To be fair, I've been the ballast for a few things. So I get all the glory. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just aware we're going to have to begin to shave and we could go on for ages, but I am interested in the death and dying. So we don't want to finish on a morbid note. Yeah. But why does it spark your kind of, you know, your passion and why are you interested in it? I think uh, it's been a developed passion because of my work in this area. Before working in aged care five years ago, it wasn't the forefront of my mind. But being in this scale, I think it's an occupational hazard that, that this has become basically one of my... KPIs is how well is the final hours of this person's life going to play out. And it makes me think, and I look around, this is facing us all. This is a common uh, occurrence to every single person that we meet, no matter what the age. And I think it's fascinating. I think it's incredible that we spend so much time and energy on... Avoiding, I, 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 but what I was going to say is other things that are perhaps tangible and are going to come and then go: a house, uh, clothing, uh, cars. It, these types of material goods. Whereas when we look at our life and we look at what we're going to achieve in it, death is going to happen. It's going to happen, and we don't talk about it, don't read about it, don't prepare for it. Uh, and it it always catches people by surprise, and I don't mean this young people who unfortunately you know do fall ill shorter than their 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 time, but in old age, people are still it creeps up on them, and I think that's a shame maybe death just needs a bit of a sexy PR campaign yeah. or something like that maybe you it's guys a- are the guys you see I mean if you look at different cultures we mentioned this before you know the Mexican culture the day of the death it's celebrated I'd love to do a death it, podcast it'd be fascinating you know what it, I'll it's, come back for that it mm. is fascinating it is fascinating and I would love for it to be you know you know, a sexy type of topic that people talk about. It's a Genwise collaboration with Rooster. <laughs> <laughs> there the we go. It's, it's You're on something. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing 
time of a person's life. And I just find it to be a privilege to be able to be part of the family and that sort of time of a person's life. I, I, I say to lots of people, it's kind of like, it's, very, it's, it's, it's a very big change, in, obviously. We just don't know what comes afterwards. I, I, I make the analogy about between having kids and, um, and sort of that end stage of life. Before you have kids, your life's one way. And for those that have had kids, you know that after you've had kids, your life changes in a massive way. Um, and death's a similar thing, where except that you just don't know what comes out afterwards. Some people do. I don't. So I claim to know. Um, but you can also medicalize birth in a big way, or you can make it completely natural, but probably somewhere in the middle is, is good. And death's the same sort of thing. And being able to be part of a person's life and be part of their family in that stage of a person's life is a privilege. Producer Montessi's giving me the wrap-up and I have to get to rapid fire. I'm just going to overrule him. My last question, (laughs) can you just explain in some level of detail what happens in those last few breaths? What do you see of someone's life? Um, do you what do you expect? Yeah, sure. Look, it's different for everyone, obviously, depending on what the cause of death is. But let's assume uh, the body's winding down, old age, death. So in the, the days leading up, someone will usually stop eating, stop drinking. Um, they will become less mobile, spend more time in bed and be more drowsy than usual. Often this is a time to talk to the family about what's going on. There's not a big need for medications and so forth at this time as the body is just winding down. Then in the hours preceding, in my experience, there may be changes in breathing. Uh, you may find that the breathing is fast or what's, slow. Is it change, what's the t- type of breathing? Stoke chain breathing. breathing. That's right, yeah. So, you know, this is a time to explain to family this is part of the normal process. You're actually describing everything I've seen of James in the last couple <laughs> <laughs> of weeks. <laughs> Bad Australian man fluid. <laughs> but keep going, yeah. So changes in breathing, uh, y- 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the person will become a little bit more drowsy. They'll be sleeping now. Uh, they won't be eating, drinking. Um, and this is when we can help t- that the physical symptoms of dying with medications, sometimes take away pain, take away anxiety to help with the breathing, any secretions and moistness in the airways. Uh, and then from there, the process can be and should be very peaceful. Someone. Well, there's the segue. There's the... There's the bait for the next podcast, I think, because I think we could almost kick off um, mm. because it's an incredible space and it just makes me realise we don't really talk about it at that level. And we don't we talk about it from a tragic point of view, you know. We always like the death story because right. it, we want to cry and it's a horrible thing and, and, yeah, it'd be amazing to know about it at a, at, yeah, at a, at a more spiritual level. That's right. It's extraordinary. And I think, you know, just one more comment before <laughs> it... It working in aged care and working around death and dying is an incredible privilege. You literally mm. every day are reminded that this is going to come to us all. And so you have a completely different perspective. It's like having a secret that no one else has. Literally, your outlook on life, you don't sweat the small stuff. So yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. They seem I think it's we can smoothly transition into rapid fire, <laughs> and I can ask you um, what for each of you. What's your exit song when you uh, when life 
comes to an end, if you were able to choose a song to uh, your your final song to go out on, what would it be? I've got a few. I'm listening to Chariots of Fire at the moment, so that's a pretty good one. <laughs> but how about The Danger Zone? Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to say Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells Part 2. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, how did you come up with the name? This is a good one. We had weeks of discussion about, about the name. We wanted something that wasn't going to restrict us, um, and we, we thought of generation initially, but I don't think we could trademark it or something. It was something. already taken, so taken. we just compromised, got two yeah. words stuck together. <laughs> stuck together and we, we it's a bit it. of a play on words, And everybody thinks we were talking about Gen Y, yeah. but that didn't even occur to us until people started, until people started calling us Gen Y, and we're like, what are you talking you about? Played with the next one, Gen Y. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, you no. <laughs> He's laughing because he thinks I've collapsed under rapid fire pressure, but I, I actually haven't. He normally has one question in his bank. No, yeah, yeah. no, not, not true, not true. Uh, the number one book that has had an impact on each of you? Atul Gawande, the author, Atul Gawande. He wrote Checklist Manifesto. He wrote another book called Being Mortal. Highly recommend it. I think... For our work week was started all off. Purple Cow by Seth Godin. I'm sorry, I can't ask. You said one, one book. I know, one but book. I can't. This is rapid fire. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ne- I never ask. <laughs> yeah, I never answer properly. I always have more than one. I've got so many books. Um, the one uh, unit in your uh, medical degree that you loved and the one unit that you hated? I really liked rock climbing after hours. It's probably the one that I liked the most. Um, I don't think I hated any in particular. I can't say dermatology because my wife's studying dermatology at the moment, so that's not fair. Uh, hated chemistry uh, and loved anatomy, anatomy, anatomy lab. Is good. What would you be doing if you weren't doctors? Mountain bike riding. I've always had a dream to, to rent. <clears throat> Uh, snorkeling, scuba equipment on a beach on a tropical island somewhere. It's, it's super hard. It's so. I think about that. Sorry, I know it's a show, but it's it's so ingrained in who I am that not being a doctor would just be weird. Like I don't know if I could answer. That. I know I'm sort of heading towards engineering before I got into medicine. I was sort of thinking that would be a good option, but it's it's weird. It's so ingrained in who I am. I can't imagine not being a doctor. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to use the word enlightening again because it has been a, a fantastic hour to um, listen to your story and to um, understand where you want to take Gen Ys and, and your philosophies and your, your thoughts behind that. And we really appreciate uh, coming on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Love what you guys are doing. Thanks for listening to our chat with Troy and Sebastian from Gen Ys. Visit genwisehealth.com.au for more information. We have plenty of interesting interviews in the bank and many more to come, so subscribe to Rooster Radio. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review in iTunes and connect with us at roosterradio.biz. We'd love to hear from you.